I founded the BeWare Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. This podcast is sponsored by my friends at Pucker Herbs. Herbal teas are a fantastic way to increase your water intake and keep you hydrated throughout the day. A little fact for you all. Did you know that your thirst mechanisms switch on when you're already 2% dehydrated? And dehydration leads to fatigue and weakness. So switch the kettle on, pop a pucker tea bag in and sip away. I have had a long-term organic relationship with Pucker Herbs for many years now, and I'm so pleased that they are our official sponsor for Live Well, Be Well Series 1. They are 100% organic and recognised by the Soil Association, as well as ethically sourced. Their newest tea, Peace Tea, has become part of my evening ritual routine and is one of my all-time favourites. Packed with hemp leaf and ashwagandha, these herbs help melt away my daily stresses. Thank you, Pucker Herbs, so much for sponsoring this first series. This episode features Kimberly Wilson, a psychologist and author specialising how to build a healthy brain, an area I firmly believe in too when it comes to nutrition and brain health. In the last four weeks, we have all been thrown into an unfamiliar and daunting world. Therefore, it isn't surprising that two-thirds of Britons are reporting that it's harder to stay positive about the future, and over half of us find it a struggle to stay positive day to day. In this episode, we uncover why we may be struggling to cope with a mixture of emotions at present, what strategies can we implement, and what foods may help support our brains. You will soon be able to tell Kimberly and I had a lot of fun throughout this podcast, and I hope it brings you some laughter as well as important information too. Hi, Kimberly. Welcome to the podcast. Hiya. Thanks for having me. <laughs> happy Easter. Well, happy Friday. I'm um, sorry for making you work on your Friday uh, Easter morning. Not at all. I kind of didn't even realise it was the Easter break. So, um, you know, I think everyone's a little bit confused. Everything's a little bit strange at the moment. It's so true. I woke up and thought, oh my goodness. I'm making Kimberly record on a bank holiday, but um, neither of us realised, so it's fine. Because <laughs> um, I know that you're so busy at the moment, which is probably why all the days are morphed into one and we're all at home. Because I'm absolutely loving yeah, your Instagram, no, by the way, I have to say. You're providing everyone with such useful information um, at this time of uncertainty, oh, especially me, I have to say. Um <laughs> And your podcast. So before I dive into my questions, which I think you know there's quite a few, um, you always ask on your podcast um, what their guest had for breakfast. And I thought Ooh. it might be nice to reverse it and ask you <laughs> <laughs> this morning, Kimberly, what did you have for breakfast to start your day? Um, well, I haven't yet. So I wanted to get my my daily ration of exercise in before starting this podcast and I've got a few other bits to do this afternoon so I went for a run but I have got a peach melba smoothie prepping on the counter so I've got peaches and nectarines raspberries I'll throw a banana in there um maybe some green tea powder and then I'll probably have that with a handful of nuts or a slice of toast and nut butter uh, when we're done Okay, so I'm going to pop us straight into all the questions that I'm about to ask you, Kimberly, because you know that there is quite a few. Yes. So I was actually reading this morning over my coffee that a recent poll carried out last week in the UK found that 62% of Britons surveyed that they found it harder to stay positive about the future since the outbreak, while 55% found it harder to stay positive day to day. And I think that's something that we can all relate to at the moment um, because mm. we are living in quite uncertain times and a lot of our routines have been changed and it needs a lot of adaption. 
And mm-hmm. I love what you've created on social media of hashtag flatten the anxiety curve, um, which is the main the main kind of thing I want to talk to you about right now. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to break down for everyone that's listening, really, what what is anxiety? How can it how how can it occur? And what strategies can we build in to cope when control, such as having to work from home, um, when it's all been taken away from you? So I'd love if you could just expand really on anxiety. Okay, so uh, we'll be here for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I always do this to you, don't I? I'm like, Kimberly, give us the full debrief. <laughs> Okay, so anxiety is, you know, a natural emotional psychological response to a sense of threat, a sense of threat about the future, right? So uh, we tend to feel anxious about things that we know to be coming or believe to be coming. And so this situation is almost textbook anxiety provoking that what we're being told is to kind of batten down the hatches, buckle up, prepare for the arrival of this really we're we're thinking about the peak of um, infectious cases of COVID-19 and one of the things that really increases our tendency to anxiety is uncertainty and here again the coronavirus is almost tailor-made to create these conditions right so uncertainty is that sense of a vague threat and Coronavirus couldn't be more vague. It's a novel virus. No one in the planet has encountered it before. It's invisible. You know, you can't see it coming. It's some of the cases have no symptoms. So anybody could be carrying it at any time. We don't know how serious it's going to be. Some people have serious symptoms. Some people have very, very mild symptoms. So we don't know really who's most at risk, except, you know, the, the, the key vulnerable people. But we know that that some younger people and and healthy people have been coming down with serious cases as well. So it has really almost the perfect storm of uncertainty, vague threat about something coming in the future to raise that sense of worry and of fear about our safety. So that's anxiety and the uncertainty of uh, coronavirus specifically. And broadly what we try to do when we're trying to help people manage anxiety is really keep an eye on the balance, you know, so how realistic is the level of worry that you are experiencing about this in relation to the actual threat? And that will vary for different people, but also help people to feel more able to cope, right? So you'll become overwhelmed with worry and anxiety if you feel like you don't have sufficient skills or resources in order to cope with whatever that threat is. And so when we're working clinically with people, what we want to do is really build up and shore up your resources, your coping skills, so that when that threat does arrive, if it does arrive for you, you feel like you've got what it takes to manage it and survive it. Because the biggest worry for anybody in any kind of anxious situation, whether it's you know going to talk to your boss about an issue going on at work or having a serious conversation with your partner, people often avoid them or feel very anxious about them because they feel like, oh, I won't be able to cope. And so really our focus is on helping people to cope. Um, And then the third part of your question. (laughs) (laughs) There's many things I want to say, but I don't want to interrupt the flow. So I'm going to keep letting you talk and come back. Uh, in terms of strategies there are many and yes with the the video series the hashtag flatter the anxiety curve video series what I'm really trying to help people do is to build in coping skills like everyday emotional management coping skills and also adaptation skills Mm -hmm. because that's one of the fundamental features of the human species we are adaptable we you know we can live in any area of the planet basically, except underwater, right? You know, we live yeah. in ice and snow. We live in, in deserts. We live in forests and jungles and, and cities. So our capacity to adapt to our environment and to our circumstances is basically unsurpassed. And, and it's worth people remembering that, that yes, this is novel, this is new, and in many ways, unprecedented. But as a species, we have encountered lots of unprecedented things in the past, and we've adapted to them. So I really want people to kind of bear that in mind. 
the human species has the capacity to manage this, to get to the other end of it and and to be okay. Yeah, that's so true. Actually, there's an amazing part in your book, which you talk about change mm-hmm. and coming to the realisation of how you do that mentally. And I think that's a really important thing that any time change is chucked into the process, which there's a lot of change going on now, mm-hmm. it's actually starting to acknowledge that and what mechanisms that you spoke about and strategies you can do to support it. I think that's really important just to just to pop in because a lot of people now, I mean, I'm living on my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's pros and cons to that. Um, and there's also people living in relationships with families, with young children. And again, adaptation, as you said, is so important because nobody really is around the same group of people day in, day out. And that can put a lot of pressure onto relationships, mm-hmm. onto family situations, um, or even somebody living by themselves because they're not having any type of contact um, at the moment at all. Mm-hmm. So do you have any advice for how people can cope in these really unusual and intense situations and how you can manage your emotions at that time? Okay. So I think the first thing that people need to allow themselves to do is to really acknowledge the absurdity of the situation, right? Yeah. I love that you said that. The absurdity. (laughs) It's just absurd. (laughs) Like a month ago, I was thinking about five, I guess five weeks ago now, I was, so the beginning of March, strolling down um, Portobello Road, market, you know, looking at bits and bobs, talking to people, singing in a Cockney accent, you know, all sorts of things. Or can we have a preview of that at the end? (laughs) (laughs) You know, popping in and and, and grabbing some food and everything was normal. Yeah. And then three weeks later, all of a sudden, restaurants are closed, hotels are closed. You're absolutely not allowed to go to markets. And if you do, then you're not allowed within two meters of another person. And it's just extraordinary that everything has changed so quickly. Mm. And also a bit absurd that it's changed so quickly. So what I wouldn't want people to do is to just think, oh, I just need to just get on with it as if nothing's happened. Everything's happened. And Mm. also it's a bit ridiculous. So I think people need to be able to, you know, almost sometimes have a a laugh about that. but also acknowledge that it's it's just bizarre and absurd and and very 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 strange, um, and within that then give yourself a little time to adjust. Right, it's like when you know if you go on holiday, you know even if if you're you're staying in a new place or you move house, you know when you're new in a new environment, it takes a little bit of time to get familiar with that environment. You know you might still think that the teacups are in the same place they were in your old house or <laughs> you know you know it takes a little while for you to adapt to your surroundings and to get into a little rhythm of how things are now and so I think for many people we're in that process of adaptation everything feels a bit weird you feel a bit seasick you know, nothing feels certain underfoot and so again the second part is allow yourself a little bit of time to adjust everything has changed everything is different uh, Everything is continuously changing. We're getting new information and advice almost on the daily. Yeah. So give yourself, you know, a little bit of compassion to say, it's going to take me a little while to get back into things. Don't don't criticize yourself for not being absolutely fine straight away. Mm. And what about relationships? What if you're with someone and you're feeling a lot of stressor and, you know, maybe you're so, bickering a lot and having an argument and... That can well, add a lot absolutely of the same, right? So I, I, your relationship is in a new space now. It's in a new rhythm. And the two of you or, you know, the family should sit down and say, this is weird, isn't it? You know, what? tell me what you need in order for us to be okay during this situation, right? If you're a kind of, you know, sometimes you have a person in the relationship, if we're thinking about a couple, um, who one person is slightly more extrovert perhaps and another person is slightly more introvert and even though you get on well that maybe the introvert needs a little bit more space to themselves for them to feel at a kind of emotional equilibrium have Mm. that discussion tell me what you need so that 
if you've gone off to be quiet, I don't take it personally. I don't think, oh, you need to get away from me. There's something wrong. That you're just doing what you need to take care of yourself emotionally. You know, because even, you know, in families and couples and if you love each other, we all have this need for our own little bit of space and quiet and peace. And especially if we don't feel as if we have the freedom even to open our door and casually go out for a walk when we Mm -hmm. want, you know, because we're trying to be responsible and adhere to the rules. Um, You're going to have to have, I think, a very clear conversation where you set the ground rules and there'll be a little bit of, you know, trial and error. You know, shall we have dinner together, but have breakfast separately? Will, Will that work for you? Will that be enough space for you you know shall we have a time every day where we sit down and and watch something enjoyable so that we're still having fun together but don't feel like we're constantly in each other's faces all the time so I I would really recommend a conversation now more than ever the quality of your communication is going to be the key to your success in getting through this if you're isolating or, or in lockdown with other people yeah, that's brilliant advice. I think it's also, yeah, it's becoming quite aware of your own emotions, isn't it? And it's becoming, you know, more engaged with yourself. And I think when we kind of have our daily routines, mm. we maybe forget that sometimes. We don't really have room to forget that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't really go anywhere. <laughs> it's a constant reminder. <laughs> I think that's really true. Yeah, I think people... Well, the other thing that's going to be really confronting about this, I've been, you know, and I've been thinking about this in terms of my own clients and, and perhaps people that I know, is that there are lots of ways that we avoid looking at either ourselves mm. or problems in our relationships by being busy, right? Mm-hmm. We're out of the house, we're doing things, we're working out, we're, you know, hustling, we're going to the shops, we're online, you know, we're busy, busy, busy. And that allows us to kind of paper over the cracks perhaps either in our own relationships with ourselves or in our relationships with other people. And I think there's a possibility then that for some people who might be in this situation, there's going to be a real emotional confrontation of we're going to really have to look at what's going on here, the reality Mm. of this situation emotionally or relationally. And I think that's going to be that's going to be quite tricky, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of whenever it comes to understanding emotions, it's it's quite tricky and, and it's quite hard. And maybe you could give us a little rundown about really all about how our brain, how it works. I mean, not in two minutes, but I know you speak about <laughs> a lot. I don't do this to you a lot. I did this to you at our event. I said, you're going to speak about everything in 20 minutes. And she was like, OK, I'll tr- I'll try. <laughs> But there's certain areas of the brain that process our emotions. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes when people can look at it more logically, it mm-hmm. really helps understand why, you know, you might be feeling more anxious at certain times or why something like a run in the morning can be really helpful to help boost certain types of emotions. So would you be able to just give us, and I know that you have a chapter within your book, which I absolutely adore by the way but you have a part of there is talking about getting to know the brain yeah um and I just love if you could maybe talk a little bit about the important areas of the brain um mm. and where our emotions are processed sure thing um yes and I really I was really keen for this book because there are lots of books out there about individual aspects of brain health, you know, Mm. exercise, mindset, nutrition. And I wanted this book to be as comprehensive as possible and kind of cover everything. And and I was really, (laughs) honestly, it does. (laughs) And I was really keen to get, you know, as a psychologist, the role of emotions in there, because Mm. we don't tend to think about emotions as being, a key feature of our brain health, Mm -hmm. which is very, very strange, right? Because if you ever are in the position of needing either a psychological or psychiatric assessment, um, then actually what the person who is assessing you is doing is really taking an account of your emotions, your emotional reactivity, the appropriateness of your emotions, the, the response that you have to certain things, you know, are you laughing in the right places? If you're talking about something that's very, very sad, is there any emotion in your face or in your voice 
or do you seem kind of flat and cut off from it? Are you, you know, perhaps angry at, at something that it's unclear to everybody else that we are angry about? So mm. we're always actually thinking about the quality of your emotions. And so it's always very strange to me that there isn't more, you know, in everyday healthcare, more guidance for people on understanding and managing your emotions. So that's why I was so keen to have that section in the book. Mm. And there are a handful of emotions that people really struggle with. Um, and anger is is one of the big ones. Um, things like guilt and shame are big ones as well. Yes. And and I kind of lead off with anger. I'm a big fan of anger, for example. Um, <laughs> I think anger is fantastic. I, I dedicated an entire episode of my podcast to it. I've done posts on it. There will be banners and bunting. <laughs> like, <there's, laughs> because I think anger is really, really, really misunderstood. We think about anger as something that is a sign of perhaps childishness because grown-ups should be able to control their emotions. And if you're angry, then you're out of control. And that's absolutely not the case. Oh, wow. Okay. Tell us more. I talk about anger in the book as being your self-esteem emotion and we're slightly off track in terms of coronavirus right now but we're, <laughs> oh no we'll this carry is, on. We, we, we can put the coronavirus to bed for the moment I mean this is much more interesting <laughs> um so I talk about anger as your self-esteem emotion and what I mean by that is that anger evolved as a protective instinct right mm-hmm. so we evolved in situations where we kind of had to protect our territories um, back in the day, that used to be maybe a physical territory or a family territory or resources like food and, you know, access to water and those sorts of things. Mm. But emotionally, it serves us the same function. And so, for example, if you're you're driving or maybe even you're standing in a queue and someone cuts in in front of you, your response is to get angry. And that anger is an indication of the unfairness of the situation, right? Yeah. It's oh, it's really unfair that someone has cut in in front of me. It's really unfair that I'm, you know, adhering to the social norms and basic manners and someone else has decided not to. And I think if you can get on board with the idea that anger is an indication to you of unfairness or injustice that you are experiencing or that you're seeing in the world, then it shifts your understanding of anger, right? And my my key example for this is of Rosa Parks and, um, you know, that in backing Alabama in segregated, racially segregated America, she refused to give up her seat. So a black woman in the South, she refused to give up her seat to a white person because she was angry, but she wasn't violent. You know, she wasn't violent. She wasn't out of control. She sat still in her righteous anger And she was one of the catalysts of the civil rights movement. So your anger, if you understand it and can process it and use it properly, can be both an indication to you of something that's unfair and unjust and therefore something that needs to be rectified Mm. in your environment. And also fuel, you know, it can power a lot of good. So I kind of do that for the big five emotions in the book. And I talk about, look, you need to understand what these emotions mean Mm. so that you don't just try to suppress them, cut them off, deny them, distract yourself from them, you know, run for hours to try to ignore them. Mm. Any of these suppress them, helpful, you know, exactly drink them away, Mm. go into workaholism, all of these activities that people use to avoid their emotions, which end up being harmful because they restrict your ability to have relationships if you do that. If you can't feel who you are, you can't relate to other people properly. so I think what people need is an education in what emotions mean. Um, I haven't spoken about where they are in the brain, but they are there in oh, the brain. Yes. The limp. <laughs> so should we talk a little bit about the limbic system? <laughs> yeah. So for, ex- for example, with anger, there's an area in the brain called the ventral uh, medial hypothalamus. And what's really interesting about this area of the brain is that in trials where they've uh, looked at it in animals, you can turn a docile animal 
into an aggressive animal by electrically stimulating this area of the brain. So what that tells us is that anger is hardwired into the brain. It's not a choice. It's not just a decision that you're making. It's not a, a sign of a lack of control. It's there in your brain. And things don't tend to stick around in your brain if, if they don't serve a function. And this is what I mean, that there is a function to these emotions. They serve a purpose, which is why they're still there. And so trying to deny them and suppress them is actually going against nature. Trying to understand them and use them is, you know, going with the best of your nature. That's mate. No, that's, do you know what? That's so true. It's just understanding your emotions. And as you said, mm. no one, we don't have that at school, do we? We don't have, no. you know, lessons on how to really harness your emotions, how to empower your emotions. And that really hit home for me when you said actually anger isn't always bad because I do always think oh I'm an adult now come on you can't get angry mm. no, and it's I, true I think, I think it's a real issue and particularly for women and you know we're, we're told we're, we're kind of socialized into being good and, and docile and quiet and polite and nice which is a word that's makes my skin crawl mm. <laughs> you, should, well, you should be nice just be nice no not if you're being treated badly yeah and one of the problems is that is if you socialize a person into denying their anger then you cut them off from their main signal that they're not being treated well right mm. Mm. and so what ends up happening is that they just put up with being treated badly because they can't connect the feeling that says there is injustice happening here that i'm experiencing yeah, no, that's um, and that all happens within the limbic system. And what part was that in the limbic system? You said that all of these, the anger it's and the, the emotions, the VMH. So the the anger is in the the ventral medial hypothalamus. Um, other things like anxiety tends to tends to focus around the amygdala. But mm -hmm. there's lots of interconnections in you know in the brain. Nothing works in isolation, and there's always a feedback loop between you know the more the cooler, perhaps more rational aspects of the brain, and then the kind of hotter older uh, in terms of evolutionary terms parts of the brain so um yeah the limbic system is generally the area that's considered central to our emotion regulation but it has lots of connections into the prefrontal cortex which is where our higher human act, uh, skills and uh, attributes are situated so our reason and our um, morality and our personality all sits in the pfc but talks to the limbic system very much no that's I mean I think you mentioned a really big point there that actually they're all interconnected and I think that's part of actually our body and our brain are all interconnected and that's another part within the book that you touch on which is obviously a field that I love um, and that I work in as well as a practitioner um, and a nutritionist mm. is how important general lifestyle factors are and one of those mm. is nutrition yeah. And I know that you studied nutrition as well. Um, and so that's a really keen area that you discuss a lot about. And mm -hmm. you do delve into it into your book as well, into, into in, in a chapter, um, which I thought was fantastic. Because I think a lot of people sometimes think their brain and their body are still disconnected. And they mm. don't realise how, you know, how powerful actually the link is. The gut and brain axes, for example. Mm -hmm. um, which we'll talk about again, and I'll let you discuss more of that. Um, but, you know, when I had someone that, I, you know, Professor Tim Spector, who, uh, somebody who I love and who you met at, at my Live Well, Be Well um, event in February, and he talks about the importance of our gut microbes on our brain health. And this is, you know, an area of research, really, that's become much more apparent in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And for a healthy brain... How can we eat to support a healthy brain diet, essentially, I kind of mm -hmm. want to call it. What are your mm -hmm. kind of top areas or what would you like to discuss on here to help people, um, you know, increase their variety and diversity of foods, not for aesthetic purposes, not for mm. how they look, which is an industry that I have worked in for many years. And that's what mm. I've always seen people or people who come to clinic want to eat a certain way for aesthetic purposes but people mm. don't actually realize your brain is made of 60% fat and mm. your brain is very connected to the fuel and the food that you put in your mouth mm. and you can optimize that so could you speak through a little bit about the types of foods or the way of eating to optimize a healthy brain diet yes um and again 
we'll be here for a while everybody buckle up <laughs> we <laughs> might have series two <laughs> or three or four um all right so i guess the first thing to say well there's lots to say and what i want people to understand is really if you think of your brain as separate from your body it's probably not your fault um, psychology and psychiatry have been pretty guilty of doing that as well. You know, that we think about the mind as something kind of ambiguous and mm. abstract. It's just, it's just, you know, your thoughts and ideas and they're just out there in the what in, you know, in the ether somewhere. <laughs> um, and therefore nothing that's to do with concrete things like the physical world, the physical reality or physical body has an effect on your mind which is the most bizarre statement if you stop and think about it, right? Because your mind is a function of your brain and your brain is an organ. Your brain is a physical organ that is situated in your body. And because it's an organ, it is, you know, affected by all of the things that go on in your body. It's affected by the amount of nutrition it has access to it. It's affected by the amount of oxygen that it is able to get to it and pump through it. It's, um, it's affected by the amount of, of sugar and glucose energy availability. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's affected by the kind of substrates, the building blocks that are available from the body, from the bloodstream, from the diet in order to build its basic structure Mm -hmm. but also all of your neurotransmitters. So your serotonin, which is the hormone associated with good mood, your mm -hmm. dopamine, which is the, the hormone neurotransmitter associated with reward and goal-directed behavior, you know, with acetylcholine, which is associated with learning and memory. Mm -hmm. All of these require vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients from the foods that you eat. So everything that you eat, builds your brain and this is the part that just doesn't make sense when we're not teaching people to think about their brains when we're teaching people to you know eat well and um, we we think about oh you know you need to eat well to protect your heart you know not too many saturated fats not too much salt mm -hmm. but what about your brain and particularly since heart disease isn't our leading cause of death you know no. cancer isn't our leading cause of death mm -hmm. our leading cause of death in the UK is dementia you know, and, and so it doesn't make sense at all that we're not teaching people about how to protect their brains because there are definitely things that you can do. Um, the first thing that I would always say, particularly and because I think it's a particular area of concern, is our intake as a population of essential fats. I am so, so um, in agreement. The threes, yeah. Um, your EPA and your DHA, those long chain fatty acids that are found predominantly in fish and seafood. And I say predominantly in fish and seafood because you also hear or you'll see on packets, oh, these flax seeds are high in omega-3, these chia seeds are high in omega-3. They're high or, or a source of omega-3, but the, the version that's in plant foods has a very, very low conversion rate yes. into the form that your brain is made of. Mm -hmm. And so if you're only eating it from plant sources, you simply will not have enough. And that's important because these fats literally make up the outer wall of each of your brain cells. That's predominantly um, the DHA, isn't it? It's predominantly DHA. Yeah. Um, and so if I, I use the analogy of a house or even a wall, right? If you If you have a wall in front of you, a third of those bricks are essential fats and they're called essential because it, your body cannot make them. You have to get them from your food. So if you're not getting them from your food, it's like you've got a, every third brick is missing. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have much less stability in the, in the basic structure. But the second part of that is that if those fats can't be found in the diet, then, you know, your, your brain is resourceful, your body is resourceful, and it will try to find other fats to put in there to, to make up the membrane. Mm. But the fats that it will find are less flexible. and mm -hmm. um, So they won't allow the normal movement of nutrients into the cell or of toxic uh, byproducts out of the cell. And so it will, will impair the function of your brain cell. Um, and also DHA is required for um, your cells to, co to communicate with one another. So yeah. again, if you're not getting enough, you're going to have impairments in that communication. 
Um, and I always lead off with this because so few people are getting enough. Yeah, it's and it's a, a huge real concern. Mm. Um, it's a real problem because what it means is that your brain is from the get go struggling to function mm. and you can't have good mood you, you you know you can't have good brain function if the basic structure is suffering so I always lead off with that please ensure that you're you're eating uh, the recommended well, more than so I, I'm, I'm so I always say more than because uh, more than <laughs> this has been my area of research for many years is, is oily mm. fish and it's something that I started to research many years ago when I was at university um, with my nutrition and biochemistry because I myself am very dyslexic. So you can imagine that being quite fun in my biochemistry lessons. Um, <laughs> so interesting compounds being created. Exactly. <laughs> I made all my own enzymes. Um, <laughs> and I remember really, I've always loved fish. And I'm just going to say, so it's not any type of fish, it's oily fish. That's things like sardines, mackerel, herring, salmon, Tuna actually isn't an oily fish as of Doesn't last September. Mm. I know. Poor old tuna. Damn it. <laughs> Still have it, but it's not counted as your oily fish. But public health actually recommend to have one oily fish a week. Mm. But I actually try to say to my clients, have at least two to three oily mm. portions of oily fish a week, if you can. Um, and mix it up. I know also that many people don't like oily fish. They can't have the smell as much. Mm -hmm. um, or it's just a taste preference. And I think in that instance, that's when supplementation is is important. Mm -hmm. um, as you said, you know, you can have it in oils, you can pop it onto your salads, um, you can have it in a capsule form. But, you know, for me, from the research, when I did a, looked at a kind of a big systematic review of all different studies that had looked into learning disabilities and fish intake, they found that, well, I found, um, it was over a thousand studies I looked at. Oh, that, wow. Yeah, that, yeah, it was a lot. Um, <laughs> that children um, who, ha who had dyslexia or ADHD or dyspraxia or some kind of learning disability, when they ate um, oily fish, so two portions of oily fish a week, mm -hmm. they overcame their chronic reading age. And that just, just shows the power of having something as a simple dietary change. You know, it's mm -hmm. not having to change your whole diet. It's adding in two or three portions of oily fish a week. Now, surprisingly, when I looked at the studies that they conducted it with supplement trials, again, the results are very mixed. Some, mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't conclusive. Um, some showed that it was effective. Some showed that it had no effect at all. Um, and that just shows, again, with supplements, how bioavailable are they? We don't know. Mm -hmm. And it really shows that food here is first. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can stomach oily fish, um, then please do try and have mm. at least two to three portions of oily fish a week. As you said, the government guidelines are one portion of oily fish one, a week. Yeah. But I oh. just, I know, it's really frustrating. <laughs> um, hopefully people will listen to this podcast and go, I'm going to go and have some oily fish for lunch. So sardines on toast. Um, or something like that, because it is those oils, as you said, the DHA mm. and the EPA that are so important for our brain. Um, sorry, I just wanted to cut. That's such no, an area of beautiful. research that I love and I, we just don't have enough of it. And we have too much omega-6 in our diet mm -hmm. as well, which um, kind of stops the conversion rate, as you said, of those shorter chain Mm -hmm. um, omega-3s which you see in chai seeds and flax seeds and they're always as you said talked about being an omega-3 food but it's not the compounds that we need so I'm going to let you carry on now no, Sorry, no, that's just, lovely <laughs> no that's absolutely perfect and I, you probably said it better than I could um, and definitely you'll not be, you'll be really interested I think in um, the, my special series coming out in the podcast this is just you and me chatting now I'm following up on some research from 20 years ago showing that Nutritional supplementation specifically or especially of the omega-3s um, reduces violence in prisons mm. by 37%. Oh. Um, and I've spoken to all the original researchers, bar one, um, and it's just extraordinary stuff. And all of those researchers, every, all of them, yeah, I think all of them, bar one, 
they eat lots of oily fish, but they also take a supplement, you know, so the people working in this are like, basically, you can't get enough. (laughs) No, no, it's so true. It's so, so true. But going back to brain health, so we obviously know that oily fish fish and omega-3, if you don't have it, a supplement will hopefully be beneficial than not having it at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is better to have food first. Can you take us through some of the other foods um, that are important for a healthy brain? Yes, the other one that I will always bang on about, and especially when I'm seeing more people switching to plant-based diets, which is fine, um, <laughs> is B12. Um, and and I say it again because B12 is predominantly found in uh, animal foods. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's basically impossible to get sufficient B12 on a fully plant-based or vegan diet. And the reason that B12 is so important for your brain specifically is because of its role in myelination. So if you cast your mind back to your high school uh, biology lessons, you'll know that there's a long, there's the kind of the head of your brain cell, the, you know, the round bit, and then there's a long tail um, called the axon. And the axon is like a wire in any of your household devices. You know, you've got the metal wire and then around it, you've got the, the insulating plastic. Um, in the brain, that wire is called the axon and it's insulated with a substance called uh, myelin. Mm-hmm. And myelin is required to help speed up the reactions and to make the signal go down the axon. When myelin is damaged, so in diseases like multiple sclerosis, for example, it's almost as if the wire short circuits and the, the signal can't go down. And that's when you start getting problems with function you know if it happens in an optic nerve then perhaps you have blurred vision or temporary loss of sight if it happens in a motor nerve then you have problems moving that limb or that area of the body Um, and what we know about b12 is that it's crucial for myelin and so a deficiency in b12 starts to have similar effects you know, so you can end up with neuropathy, you can end up with pain in your nerve cells. And at the extreme end, a B12 deficiency can mimic dementia. Mm-hmm. So it's a real concern for anybody switching to a diet where they're cutting out uh, animal foods. Because I think one of the things that happens is that people think that animal foods are just protein sources yeah, or just you know fat sources. And they say, well, if I'm cutting it out, but I'm getting my protein from somewhere else, and I'm getting my fats from somewhere else, then I'm fine. But they're actually quite nutrient-dense foods and you know, for certain nutrients. And so if you are switching or you're reducing, you know, it's important to understand which nutrients you might be missing out that, in particular, from my perspective, are relevant to brain health. And so along with the omega-3s, that, that would be B12. Um, so that's another one. Um, yeah. And also, can I pop in there really quickly? Sure um, thing. The B12, once you, so say you've been um, deficient in it for a long time, you can't reverse the effect. It's not like your liver <laughs> where you can kind of just regenerate it. Um, mm-hmm. Once you start mimicking those effects of dementia, you know, you kind of, you can't, you can't add anything on to, to make that mm-hmm. go away. That's kind of it for life. Um, and so that's why it's really important when you are switching to maybe a vegan or plant-based diet, which can be done in a healthy way, mm-hmm. um, it is to be really aware because what you don't want to do is be deficient in B12 for, say, 20 years. Mm. And then these effects start happening that you can't reverse. So Absolutely. it's just re- that's why I think we all want to talk about it so much is because once you do get to that stage, it isn't reversible. Mm. Um, and so that's obviously, I think that's the worry. Definitely. And especially because people tend to switch these diets for health reasons. So, mm. you know, it's admirable in lots of ways, but it potentially sets you up for different deficiencies that you should just be aware of so that you can supplement appropriately. Oh, no, absolutely. And do you know what? Something that I really love you to talk about, because I know it's part of your healthy brain diet, is it's inflammatory foods and inflammation and why, what, well, one, I think maybe let's break it down. What is inflammation? Um, two... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, Let me destructive? write these down. <laughs> <laughs> Two. I mean, I feel this podcast going for a while. Two. Why is inflammation detrimental? Um, and mm-hmm. you know, what is the dietary inflam- inflammatory index? 
All right. So uh, (laughs) here we go. So inflammation is your body's response, your body's normal immune response to illness or injury. So if you get a cut or a graze or if you get a cold, you know, that stuffiness, that heat, that pain, um, the restriction in movement, perhaps if you've got an inflamed joint, that is your immune system's response. That is your inflammatory response. And we need that. We want that because if you didn't have an inflammatory response, then you would be overtaken by the pathogen, whatever it is, and uh, not last very long, frankly. Um, so <laughs> it's 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 not a bad thing fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but And usually it's a self-limiting response so that once the pathogen is gone, you know, once that bacteria or you know, the virus has been subdued, your body returns back down to an almost kind of observational baseline level where you've just got your immune cells looking around the body, making sure everything's fine, looking out for bad guys, but, you know, it doesn't have to send an alert back to, to base for, for backup. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if information goes on for a long time, and if it goes on for a long time, that's either because there's a chronic infection Mm-hmm. Or because there's something about the way that we're living that makes the body feel as if it's under pressure all the time. It's under a lot of stress. This can lead your immune response to be higher and heightened for a longer period of time. And when that happens, we're in a state of what's called systemic or chronic inflammation. And in the book I talk about, I liken it to you know having two police officers who just haven't had a break. You know, they've been on the beat for I don't know, four months nonstop. They haven't slept. They haven't had a break. They haven't had any snacks. And they're trying to do their job, but obviously they're not in, in, the, in the best state. And perhaps they start calling for backup when they see some trouble, but maybe there's not any real trouble there. Or maybe it's a case of mistaken identity. And when you get an inflammatory response when nothing's there, then the inflammatory cells can damage the body's own healthy tissues. And that's called autoimmunity. And if there's an inflammatory response, but it's a case of mistaken identity, then that might be something like getting uh, an inflammatory response to a peanut protein. And that's when we get allergies. Mm -hmm. So inflammation can go wrong. And we know that there are aspects of our lives. So a sedentary lifestyle, a, a nutritionally deficient diet, chronic stress, um, those sorts of things can can contribute to this ongoing state of inflammation. Um, and, and that inflammation can cross from the body into the brain. And if it triggers inflammation in the brain, that becomes neuroinflammation. And we know that neuroinflammation is associated with increased risk of depression, increased risk of bipolar disorder, increased risk of schizophrenia. So this is, this is why it's always my concern and I'm always thinking about these things. And the Dietary Inflammatory Index is a measure used in research to look at the inflammatory potential of somebody's diet. So they basically, you know, stack up all of the ingredients that make up someone's diet and they've cross-referenced it with biomarkers of inflammation in the body. And it comes out with a scale of foods that are more associated with a either pro-inflammatory profile or an anti-inflammatory profile. And the foods that turn up to be, you know, within the anti-inflammatory kind of profile are all the ones that you've heard of. So again, your omega-3s, your EPA, um, herbs and spices, you know, ginger and onions and garlic and turmeric, um, your the the vitamins that come from leafy green vegetables. So mm-hmm. essentially, that Mediterranean style diet that people keep banging on about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, it is the helpful. addition of spices. Yeah, right. Um, is the one that seems to be most associated with helping to keep levels of systemic inflammation in the body down. Um, and so if that's another reason to get you eating leafy greens or, you know, even, you know, a curry, because a curry has lots of lovely spices in it that are associated with good things. So yes. if you, I love a chana masala. So Ooh, you know, I like that too. These sorts of things. And having a, a broad variety of nutrients available for you, that's what's going to help create the, or support the conditions in your body to help reduce the risk of having a higher inflammatory profile 
and and additionally to protect your brain. So so those so kind of I guess it's beta carotene I think mm-hmm. is one of them which is um it's found normally in sweet potatoes or kind of any brightly coloured vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um fiber another thing we might if we have time talk about the gut brain axis but fiber mm-hmm. is really important. Um your berries your mm. garlic, your ginger, your green tea and your black tea, which actually I think people might be quite happy to hear. Yes. Um, and Tim Spector speaks a lot about it, but actually sometimes even coffee. Um, I know that yes. might be not on it, but it's actually quite good for your gut microbes and anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Um, your omega-3 fatty acids, as you said, your turmeric. So all of these foods, and I always say to people, instead of thinking what you can't have, try mm-hmm. and have a, what you can have and what things are going to really help. And so they're definitely a couple of foods that as you said and it's very clearly beautifully written in your book (laughs) but what foods um should we maybe limit because I think alcohol is maybe one thing that I've heard that can be quite maybe not the best for our brain health Mm. and could you explain why (laughs) and interestingly the profile of alcohol um there's a little bit of a paradox because it seems that in quite small amounts, and I mean quite small amounts, we're probably talking less or, or around 80 to 100 mils per day of something like a red wine rather than, mm. say, vodka. Yeah, <laughs> again, in line with the Mediterranean <laughs> diet, the flavonoids, yes. the polyphenols. Yes, exactly. Um, that people tend to have better mental health outcomes than, than those who are completely teetotal. Mm-hmm. Um, that is interesting. That, it is interesting, and it, it might be something correlational about that. You know, if you're teetotal, is it because you've had to abstain? Or yes, there's a possibility that a little bit of alcohol, at least, um, might be part of a brain healthy lifestyle. Mm. However, there is a very clear point when alcohol becomes toxic to the brain, and that's partly because. When you're when alcohol is metabolized in the body in the liver, what happens is that it creates aldehydes, um, and and these are compounds that are basically used to preserve, um, you know, bodies in embalming um, and preserve things. It's kind of like pickling. You you end up kind of pickling mm. your brain, which you do not want to do. And we certainly think that a high proportion, probably around ten percent at least of the dementias that we see are actually alcohol alcoholic dementias they're called wow. which are caused by long term intake of excessive alcohol so alcohol would certainly be something that i would be encouraging people to look at mm. and and probably reduce i think most people who drink are probably drinking a bit too much in terms of their brain health yeah um the other thing is actually, and I think people get quite jumpy about sugar, but when in the research, rather than say, you know, a piece of cake, which most of the research says two or three times a week, not a problem. Mm. Where you get a very clear increase in inflammation and in inflammatory um, biomarkers is in sugar sweetened beverages. So fizzy drinks, in particular, or even not even fizzy drinks, so things like Oasis, which is just a sweetened but still beverage. Sugar-sweetened beverages have a very clear dose-dependent response on biomarkers of inflammation. Mm. So that if they just ask someone to stop drinking one, if someone has maybe a can a day, asking them to take one of those cans a week away and just replace it with water Mm. reduces that person's inflammatory biomarkers. Mm. So... There, there really isn't, I'm afraid, very much good news. You know, usually you can say, you know, with, with things like alcohol, a small amount maybe, but not too much. But there doesn't seem to be a kind of benefit of sugar-sweetened beverages um, yeah. in the literature. So if you can cut them down, please do. Um, or if you, you know, want to start by diluting them and... Mm. I mean, it goes to the point of even when, you know, even just for our brain health, again, that will link to obesity. So our brain does not register all the, the, the liquid sugars that we drink. So such as the alcohol or the, you know, the fizzy drinks, mm-hmm. our brain does not register that as food, as an energy intake. And I think that's really important. That people don't always mm. seem to think of it in that way. Your brain doesn't say, oh, I've had this much sugar because it's in a mm. liquid form. 
Whereas if you had that in a food form, your brain would be registering it more. Mm. And so it's not even as well. It's the it's the increase of obesity that they cause um, mm. from having constant sugary drinks and the dental implications as well. And so there's so many multifaceted dimensions of health here. It's affecting your cognition and your brain health. It's affecting mm. your weight, which again might lead to a higher risk of, you know, depression, um, dental health. So there's, again, I think it's so interlinked here, isn't it? And it's mm. kind of saying, actually, let's just try and increase our water and hydration, which is good for our brain. Mm-hmm. May I say, and Definitely. I'm sure you can obviously expand on that. <laughs> Why is hydration so important for our brain health? Because I know that as soon as I forget to drink, I'm fatigued and I'm tired. Um, and I know that when my thirst mechanisms switch on, I'm, I'm, I need to drink. I'm dehydrated. And mm-hmm. that shows me that I've not kept up with my water intake. So could you explain why hydration is actually so important for us? Sure. And it's kind of for the, the reasons that you've just mentioned, right? Uh, that you, in order for anything to in your body to move in and out of a cell membrane, there needs to be adequate liquid. There mm-hmm. needs to be adequate water. Um, and so without that, you can really slow, if you start to become dehydrated, and of course, it's not just your body that becomes dehydrated, it's your brain that becomes dehydrated. And when it does that, it loses a bit of, of volume and um, your brain has to work harder in order to do its normal function. And that's when you get a higher degree of what's called per- perceived exertion. You know, your brain feels like it's working harder. And if it feels like it's working harder, everything feels just tougher to do. So you'll feel more tired, you'll feel more fatigued, you'll feel more irritable because you feel like you're just a bit exhausted and you're having to push, push, push a little bit more. Um, And so everything is just made a bit more difficult and a bit more painful by not having sufficient hydration. But the second point that I want to make, and this is a whole section that I had to take out of the book. Really? I decided it was, yeah, it was too niche, is the impact, um, I think, particularly for sports people of dehydration and particularly, you know, in the book, I do talk about um, where exercise is a risk for the brain. So most of the time exercise is fantastic for the brain. It's the best way to help your brain grow, support your, your um, mental health in terms of depression, anxiety, or reduce your dementia risk, all of that. But there are some sports, particularly contact sports, boxing, rugby, those sorts of things that, obviously have a risk of concussion and a concussion is a form of brain injury. But the additional risk of dehydration on top of that is that when you're dehydrated, you know, your brain isn't fixed in place. It's kind of suspended in a little, a very thin layer of cerebral spinal fluid. Um, so when you're dehydrated, there's less volume in your brain, but also less volume of uh, cerebral spinal fluid. And that means that actually more space between your the very soft, delicate tissue of your brain and the very hard, bony structure of the inside of your skull. And so the risk for sports people, boxers, rugby players, roller derby, um, American football players, of being dehydrated as well as then taking a blow to the head is that there's increased impact of that blow because there's less cushioning um, and that there will be more diffuse damage to the brain. And I wanted I wanted to spend more time on that in the book, but um, because I, I think a lot about people who box and people who do weight cutting and MMA and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but just to say, you know, if anybody listening is participating in any of these sports or anything like that, please ensure that you're properly hydrated to give your brain the very best chance of of being as safe as possible. Um, and so this kind of links me because you did mention exercise, which I do also want to touch upon, but it shows how multifaceted it is to look after your brain. It's not just nutrition. Um, it's not just kind of exercise. Let's talk about stress and neurogenesis, um, which you'll explain this much better than me, what neurogenesis is. But, you know, you know, my view is that it, refers to the process by which neurons or nerve cells are generated within the brain. So I'd love to expand a little bit on neurogenesis and does stress, because I think we all live 
in chronically elevated stress or maybe I just do <laughs> I don't know um I'm definitely gonna put my hand up and say I'm one of those people um and I am somebody who knows a lot about this but I am not always implementing the measures that I should be um same as nutrition I know about it I don't always follow the rules um so what impact so what is neurogenesis how can we help neurogenesis um and stress, does that have an impact on it? So neurogenesis and your ex- explanation of neurogenesis was absolutely fine. So it's the process of building new brain cells or and or protecting the survival of the ones that are already there. And that's really important because we know that as we get older, that you do begin to lose brain cells. And it used to be believed that basically you were born with pretty much all the brain cells, well, in childhood by that point. Um, all the brain cells that you're going to have, and therefore you had to protect them because it was just a downhill slide from there. But actually, that understanding of the brain has shifted. And now we know that adult neurogenesis is a function of the mammalian brain, of, and we are mammals, so a function of the human brain as well. Um, and that's really important. And I talk in the book about a concept called cognitive reserve, or what I call you know, building a pension pot for the brain. And that's basically the idea that there are habits and activities that you can do in your daily life that switch on your brain's ability to build new brain cells. And that's really important because as you get older and you, you know, maybe your brain does begin to shrink and that shrinkage is associated with forgetfulness or what's called mild cognitive impairment. So you're less able to follow a conversation. You're more likely to get lost, lose things um, and you have problems with your memory. Then. If you've been doing this all your life, if you've been turning on your neurogenesis all your life, you'll have more reserve to build on, which will be protective in terms of your function. And so that's really what I want people to be thinking about. And exercise is a fantastic way of doing it. It's probably our most robust way of turning on this neurogenesis. Um, And stress is the opposite. So we can take small amounts of stress. That's absolutely fine. Um, But chronic stress turns down our ability to create neurogenesis and is associated with a greater risk of depression, which itself is increased uh, associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. So, um, yeah, the whole book is kind of predicated around how do we switch on neurogenesis to help you have a healthier, you know, bigger, more voluminous, better connected brain so that as we get older, um, you're in a, a, a better position to hold on to your, your function. Wow, that's 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 so interesting. And also, it's just amazing to hear that actually there is things that you can do to create new neurons mm. and, new, and, and you know, new brain cells. It doesn't it's not all downhill. It's not. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't. Exactly. So you can keep growing and evolving your brain, which is amazing. I would like to ask you, um, how do you live? Well, what does live well, be well mean to you? Essentially, what does that phrase mean to you? I think it's, I think of it as a kind of sense of peace. I think we don't think enough about just having a peaceful life, you know, just enjoying the things that you have, being appreciative, being grateful, maybe, you know, not having to force everything or push or fight for everything, you know, and I, and I really encourage people to think about just creating more peace in their lives mm-hmm. and, and valuing peace. So for me, um, that's what Live Well, Be Well is, is about. It's about, you know, friend, friendships and relationships that are peaceful. It's about having a peaceful relationship with my body and with food. It's about doing activities that I enjoy and not doing the things that I don't want to do, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, not putting myself in an, in a position where I feel like I'm compromised or my integrity is, in, is compromised and just cultivating as much peace as possible in my life. I think that's an amazing fact that you said about silence and stillness because I was actually reading a book, Metamorphosis, the other day and it said how you never have silence in your life. You're constantly mm. stimulated. Even if that's just getting in the car and putting the radio on, you know, you do it instinctively and actually is that is that helping? Do you need a sense of just quietness and mm. stillness? I'm that person that always puts music on when I run because you're constantly being stimulated by technology and I feel even now at the moment I'm having so much screen time more than I normally would mm-hmm. as a way of connection um so I think yeah that's a really nice 
thing to actually think about. And it's really nice to hear how what it means to you. Hmm. And lastly, I always like to ask a fun and interesting fact about the brain, which we may not know. Um... Well, very interestingly, the you know we spoke about the the VMH, the area of the brain that is associated with aggressive behaviour. Um, that's also, um, and I say in the book, it's very close to the part of the brain that's associated with sexual behaviour. Um, and so there's a way that <laughs> in the book I say, you know that feeling angry is as natural as feeling sexy. So <laughs> it shouldn't, don't feel like you need to get rid of your anger um, because it's, it's, it's there the in the same place. <laughs> it's the I love how sex and anger are in the same part of the brain. That is a great fact to end on. Go and have lots of angry sex. <laughs> oh no that's brilliant Kimberly thank you so much for being a guest I hope this helps and, and try not to be too anxious we'll be okay and lastly where can we find out more information all about Kimberly Wilson um, so probably the best place to head to is my website that's kimberlywilson.co um, and it's Kimberly with an L-E-Y and otherwise I spend most of my time talking about the brain and emotions on Instagram where I am at food and psych so F-O-O-D-A-N-D-P-S-Y-C-H Fantastic I know we'll also put that in the show notes Thanks Kimberly. My pleasure Thank you for listening to Live Well, Be Well Please do share with your friends and help spread awareness of this podcast I hope these conversations inspire you to create a positive change in your life. And if you do like the podcast, please do leave a review. Until next time, live well and be well.